Uh, Father, thank you for uh, the privilege of being together around your word this weekend. Um, thank you for these brothers and sisters. And uh, Lord, it, it's, it's, always, um, it's always special when we get to get together. Um, and it's special, especially when we come around your word and even when we get a chance to hang out with uh, your people from other places and other churches. Uh, so would you meet us here? Um, would you remind us of your greatness and your power? Uh, remind us of your sufficiency. And even as we talk about the nature of your word today, that even though we know these things, Lord, largely already, uh, would you overwhelm us once again with how special, how unlike any other gift your word is to us? And might we live in light of the uniqueness of that gift. Lord, we're grateful. Uh, meet us here. Work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, how many of you are actively working on the ACBC exams? Like you're actively working on the, you know, don't, don't be shy. Raise them high. Okay. Um, and then the rest of you are here because you're kind of just thinking about it sometime in the future maybe or you had nothing better to do this weekend. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. So, so you want you want to take the class first, and then you're going to go right. Okay. I got you. Yeah. Did Did Terry do his uh, primer on the exams a moment ago? So, so you've got all the cheat sheets. You got all the notes, the secret codes, right? The the cheat codes and um, no. Seriously, we are here, especially in a, gr- a group like this. We want to be here to serve you. So, um, ask away. No question is is inappropriate. Um, uh, Terry and I both have served as graders. And then uh, I work with a team of graders, so uh, we we kind of know what everyone's looking for and what they're not looking for. So our goal here is not just to give you the content, but to give you the know-how to put answers together that hopefully, um, our, our goal is, you know, pass the first time or, or really close. So um, so all of, you, all of you have a copy of the exams, is that true? You have a copy of the exams, those should be somewhere in your notebook. Um, if not, we can get those for you. You can find them on the ACBC uh, website, biblicalcounseling.com. Are they not in there? Okay. So, well, you don't, you don't need them right now, but we will get you a copy just so you have it. But So the, the theology exam um, is a series of questions about, you guessed it, theology. And then the counseling exam is really largely about practical theology, how do you apply a lot of those doctrines uh, in different counseling scenarios. So uh, we're going to talk about both this weekend, largely the theology exam. And the first part of the theology exam uh, relates to the subject of bibliology, which is the doctrine of the Bible, what we believe about the Bible. And so that's what we're going to talk about here. And, um, you know, you think about this. um, Where do people get their advice uh, when they give it, where, where, where do people get advice when they express opinions? Life. From life, yeah. life experience, From other people, other people? Google. Google, yes, reading, reading. and uh, and those can all be good sources, right? Um, the the argument of biblical counseling, and it's really not biblical counseling; it's it's the it's the biblical argument is. There is nothing else quite like the Word of God. 
and because of its unique character qualities, because of its nature even, it alone is a sufficient source to build a counseling system upon. We, we can learn lots of other helpful things, right? But to actually have God's word and then to understand what it says and to think about that for life and problems and what we do is, uh, again, there's no other source like that. That's why we need bibliology. And of course, if you're going to be a biblical counselor, you have to know something about the the Bible. Very good. All right. One of you understands that. That's two of you. Okay. So um, this is one of Pastor Terry's favorite little uh, cartoons here. So he might show this to you as well, but um, it's really good. So can you see? Can you read? It's kind of probably hard to read in the back, but uh, there are our favorite uh, Peanuts characters there. Boy, look at it rain. What if it, now if I if if I had shown this to you last week, we'd be like, what's that? What's rain? But we've had a little bit this week. So look at the rain. What if it floods the whole world? It will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. You've taken a great load off my mind, says Lucy. Sound theology has a way of doing that, right? So that's our takeaway, right? Sound theology, right? The word of God um, knowing the Word of God is a a way of um, calming our mind, right? Taking a great load off of our minds there. So what we're going to do in this question, uh, the question on the ACBC theology exam, this is actually theology exam number one, describe the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture as well as the relationship of each of these to one another. So if I'm grading your exam, how many paragraphs should I see? If I'm grading your exam, how many paragraphs should I see? Well, let's, let's count them. Describe the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture, as, the, as well as the relationship of each one of these to one another. Okay, So at least four, um, if you wanted to relate them all in multiple paragraphs at the end. I guess you could do that. But one, one paragraph is what we're looking for. So four paragraphs, right? So the first thing I'm going to do if I'm grading your papers, I'm going to look and I'm going to see, did you talk about inerrancy? Did you talk about inspiration? Did you talk about authority? Is there something related to that? If you make it really hard for me to answer that question, that starts me off in a bad mood as your grader. Okay? No. Uh, don't do that. But one way you can help yourself and the grader is to make sure that you have sort of logically laid out your uh, answers here, okay? Um, it, uh, what we're looking for is an essay style with some concise but uh, appropriate paragraphs. Um, what we don't want is like a narrative, right? Don't, don't, uh, not the journey of the Bible or anything like that, just inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and then the relationship. That will help us. Okay, what are we talking about when we talk about inspiration? Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, one of our red-letter texts when we think about inspiration. Now, as Pastor Terry, I'm sure, reminded you, on the exams, you got to do a couple of things. So in a, in a, in a question like this, you're going to want to define inspiration. You're going to want to demonstrate that that definition is biblical by referencing one or more Bible verses. 
And if there is explanation needed, give that explanation. And in the case of our question, you're going to have to relate those three qualities of the Bible to one another in some way. So um, here's what you don't do, and I'm sure Terry just talked about this. Don't fill your answer with full quotes from the Bible. Okay? You can maybe cite one, maybe shorter verse, but what we want to see is citations that would support what you're claiming. And sometimes if that citation needs explanation, then give some explanation for that. Uh, so our key text here, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, again, Paul's writing to Timothy. He's talking about his heritage, you know, his background, that he grew up in a, a home where the, the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament by context, um, were taught to him, right? Verse 15, from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then here's our, here's our verses here. Okay, and maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Um, well, let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll do some definitions here. Okay, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So just to define inspiration, uh, Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology uh, defines it as the fact that the words of Scripture are spoken by God. There's inspiration. Uh, a little more developed, uh, Paul ends in the Moody Handbook of Theology, inspiration may be defined as the Holy Spirit's, here's your word for the night, superintending over the writers, so that while according to their own styles and personalities, the result was God's word written, authoritative, authoritative trustworthy, and free from error in the original autographs. When, when uh, Dr. Enns there uses the word autograph, theologians use that. An autograph is just like if you go up to the, you know, the, the baseball stadium in Arlington and, and you get a baseball card. Do they sell baseball cards? They still do that? Yeah. Do they still sign baseball cards? Okay. I've not done that in a long, long time. But so you go up to the, to the Arlington ballpark and you, you go there, the new stadium, right? What's it called? The Globe Life Field. Thank you. See, all my, all my illustrations are old, I guess. So anyway, so you go up to Globe Life Field. You go for batting practice. You hope the guy comes over. You say, hey, can you sign my card? You sign. We, we call that a what? An autograph. Why do we call it an autograph? What's that? He signed it. It's an original signature. Autograph refers to the original signature, right? So when we talk about the autographs of Scripture, we're talking about the original writings of the Bible. So the actual letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians or the actual Torah that Moses you know, wrote out on the scroll on the mountain or whatever it happens to be, right? So when we think about inspiration, we're talking about authoritative, trustworthy, free from error in those originals. Um, we can talk about manuscript evidence another time, but it's the original autographs that are um, inspired and inerrant there, okay? So here's our text that we just read. Let's look at what it claims here, okay? Can we do that? So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. Theopneustos, the compound Greek word there. Uh, you guys are going to learn great words like superintending and theopneustos tonight, right? Um, we say that only because if you hear the word inspired, you, you might think, oh, I see that sunset and that rainbow and it inspired me to go write a song or poetry or something like that. That's not inspiration. Inspiration in theology is this idea that the scripture, 
though written through the agency of men, is actually the word of God um, as if it was spoken out by God, breathed out by God, which is what the word means there. Now look back at the text with me. The God-breathedness, the God-breathed quality describes what? The Bible itself. uh, and, And Dr. Enns was helpful here, okay? The author's superintend the writing. That that means God uses the human authors in such a way that they write what God wanted them to write. But it's not the authors that were inspired, it's the text itself that is inspired or God-breathed. So we're talking about a quality of the text. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, by context, that little phrase, all scripture, refers properly to the 39 books of the Old Testament. How do we know that? How do we know he's talking about the Old Testament when he says all Scripture? Yeah, there's no New Testament yet, right? I mean, he's in the process literally of writing the New Testament. Now, there was there, you know, Timothy, Second Timothy was written a little bit later, so there were some earlier books like James and First Timothy and others that were written before this, but the New Testament is not complete yet. So Paul's saying those sacred writings, Timothy, that you knew as a child, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, we would call them the Old Testament, are divinely inspired they are god breathed and so we go time out are we saying only the old testament's inspired well by context what paul is claiming is the old testament is inspired but what he's what he's actually saying is scripture is breathed out by god and what's neat is as we read the rest of the new testament we understand that this god breathed quality of the Old Testament scriptures comes to describe rightly the New Testament letters that were recognized as scripture. Let me let me demonstrate that so that you see what I mean here. Uh, you're, you're in Timothy. Just just turn to the right a few pages to Second Peter, chapter three. I know I'm making you a little bit nervous, but this is important. It's important because. We believe that we're going to interpret the Bible based on what the author meant. And what Paul meant was all scripture is inspired by God and all you have in that day is the Hebrew Old Testament. But but the principle of what he's saying is going to come to apply to the New Testament as well. But let me show you how we get there. Okay, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Again, uh, Peter is writing. You know, He talks about sufficiency early on in chapter 1. And then he gets to chapter 3. And um, we'll pick it up in chapter 3 of Second Peter. We'll pick it up in verse, uh, well, we'll pick it up in 14. Let's do that. So 14, he writes, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, meaning the, the consummation, the, the destruction of the earth, the new heavens and new earth, all that, uh, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Verse 15, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, now watch what he does here. Just as are also, excuse me, just just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Okay, Peter, like Paul, is king of the run-on sentence. Okay. Uh, kind of, it's a co- complicated sentence there. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm writing to you, encourage, you know, continue in this, and you know, 
Paul, our beloved apostle brother, he also wrote to you some things as well, right? And, and do you take uh, encouragement that Peter found some of the things Paul wrote to be difficult to understand? I don't know. He, Peter did. But look back at the text here. He says, talking about Paul's writings, what does he say there? He says, there are some things hard to understand. The untaught and unstable distort them just as they do what? The rest of the scripture. So what did Peter just do there regarding Paul's letters? He equated them with scripture. Do you see that? What that shows us, and Second Peter was written a little bit later in the, in the first century, what that shows us is as Paul is writing letters to the early church, Peter and the other apostles were already recognizing the God-breathed quality of those letters. And uh, you know, we'll talk about you know, canonicity and textual criticism another day, but, but one of the things we need to know, and we believe this as, as Christians, that we believe the New Testament is the Word of God, not, not because a church council got together and, and voted, you know, if you've seen the Da Vinci Code and they botched the history and all that, right? That's not how it happened. What happened was the early church recognized the God-breathed nature of these New Testament letters. We have 27 books in our New Testament, not because a church council voted on it or because someone won a political battle, but because the early church agreed about the God-breathed nature of those 27 books and distinguished them from all the other books. Some of those other books were forgeries. Some of them were great history, but they weren't of a God-breathed quality. So when we talk about canonicity, we talk about it's a recognition process of something intrinsic in the book itself. In other words, the book itself demonstrates that it is from God. The church merely recognizes that fact. Do you understand that? That's, a diff- that's different than saying, we as the church have voted and we think that these books are God. That, you know, in that sense, the authority is in the church, whereas we believe the authority is in the scriptures. And the church merely recognizes that, that authority. Does that make sense? That seems like a little bit of a, of a technicality, but it's actually not. It, it's a very, very important distinction. And that's modeled for us right here. We, we believe that because it's modeled for us in the Bible. Peter recognized Paul's writings along with the other apostles as equal with the scriptures because they are all God-breathed. We have another reference here. Uh, we won't turn there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, Paul quotes... Dr. Luke, in Luke chapter 17, verse, or, excuse me, Luke 10, verse 7 there. So again, we recognize some of the later New Testament authors are quoting earlier New Testament authors, quoting them as scripture sources. So what does that mean? If we go back to 2 Timothy, where we started here a moment ago, what we recognize is that by context, when Paul is writing 2 Timothy, he's thinking specifically of those Old Testament writings. However, the New Testament writings are elsewhere included with the Old Testament as Scripture. Therefore, both the Old and New Testament writings are viewed as Scripture, and thus both are considered God-breathed. You see how we get there? You say, that seems like a really long roundabout way to get to your conclusion. It might be, but it is a biblical historical course. Okay, It, it would be jumping a crucial step just to say 2 Timothy 3 d- applies directly to the New Testament. It does, but it does so as 
the New Testament book is book, books are recognized. Okay, questions on that? I know it's a little bit technical, but um, this is track two. You can handle it, right? Yes, Betsy. Uh, no, no, and we'll look at some other passages here in a minute. Uh, you think of uh, Psalm 119, Psalm 19, Proverbs 30. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of all sorts of places in the Bible that describe the Word of God, the, you know, the Bible as as God's Word. No. Oh, the New Testament. Um, no, this is not exhaustive. I've given you a couple of examples here. If you look up in your resources uh, some of the systematic theologies on bibliology and, and inspiration. There's a more exhaustive list there. Yeah. Other questions? Okay. <clears throat> so, 2 Timothy 3 gives us sort of these ideas of, of God-breedness. Uh, now, notice if we, if we expand on that, we, we made the point already that the very words of Scripture are God's very words. Um, and, and can I just... I, I know a lot of you know this already, but <clears throat> this helps me. Let's say that we're sitting here and I'm teaching you question one and um, Jesus walks into the room and he says, hey, track two, um, can I take over the class and tell you something? Of course, we would all bow down and worship submission, right? And and, uh, and one day we will see him, won't we? Um would you pay attention to that? Would you be on your phone like, what's my Snapchat? You know, what's my, right? Would you be thinking about the game tomorrow? Right? You and I would be riveted to God talking to us, wouldn't we? Do you know that there is no difference whatsoever between Jesus walking into the room right now and talking to us and you opening this first thing in the morning with your cup of coffee to commune with your God. There's no difference. But if you're like me, when I do this in the morning, I'm tired, I'm distracted. I might be thinking about my phone or the day or whatever happened the night before, right? And, and, and I ought not be. So one of the takeaways from this question personally is, do I treat the Word of God for what it really is? Do I give it my full attention? Uh, am I... If Jesus said, go get me a Coke, you'd go get him a Coke. You'd bring him six. Uh, you'd bring a whole case, right? right? Get, so when we read the will of God, are we that eager to obey? So that, that's the challenge. If we really believe in inspiration, that's exactly how we should respond because it, it's no different. It's no less God's word because it's written as if it were verbal coming through the incarnate member of the Trinity uh, at that moment, right? Okay, so that, that's our application for the night. Uh, number two, the Bible is the word of God down to the smallest letter or even part of a letter part of a letter. Uh, follow me over to Matthew. We'll look at some of these verses here. Uh, as you're turning there, Jesus is in his Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus in the New Testament. Chapter 5 to 7. Uh, starts off with those, what we call Beatitudes, those qualities 
of uh, godliness, we might say. And then he turns the corner in chapter 5 and he begins to discuss his relationship and really the gospel's relationship to the law. Now, by the law, uh, by context, Jesus has in mind what he says here. um, These are the instructions given in the Old Testament. And when Jesus uses the phrase there in chapter 5, verse 17, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, that's shorthand for the Hebrew Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. Okay, so follow me here. 5.17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And we can talk about what that means and whatnot, but, but the point is Jesus doesn't come to set the Old Testament aside. He comes to fulfill it. And the, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount demonstrates what he means by that. Uh, verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, he's thinking about the Hebrew Scriptures, but just like we did in 2 Timothy, we we can apply that by principle to the whole Bible, right? Because they're both considered Scripture. So what's he saying here? He's saying uh, we don't discard the Bible. We don't discard the instructions of God, the Old Testament, or by application, the New Testament. And he says here, not not the smallest letter or stroke, meaning meaning this word of God is God's word down to the letter. Okay, so so here's your quiz question. Mr. Slaughter can't answer this. Um, What is the smallest letter that Jesus might have in mind? It's the Yod, isn't it? Okay, it looks like our apostrophe. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, the Yod. And... um, I mean, it looks like you know someone sneezed on the page. If you look at Hebrew, it looks like someone sneezed on the Hebrew. Am I right? That, that's what Hebrew looks like. And uh, so that's the smallest letter that Jesus would have had in mind. Actually, if he was referring to Hebrew or Aramaic, Aramaic uses the same alphabet as Hebrew in this day. And then the smallest letter, or then he says, a stroke. Anybody know what the stroke is being referred to there? What's that? Okay, that's a good thought. That's a good thought. Uh, not the Yoda. So, um, I mean, it could be. And in fact, in Greek, that's what it is. But it's Jesus is, Jesus is probably referencing the Hebrew or maybe even the Aramaic alphabet at this point, even though we get it inspired in Greek. No, it's a part of a letter. So here's, there's one Hebrew letter. There's another Hebrew letter. That's a D, that's an R. What's the difference? The ledge. Meaning, if you're not careful, your D might look like an R, your R might look like a D. And when Jesus talks about the stroke, he's referencing a part of a letter that distinguishes one from the other. You say, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is, we believe in the God-breathedness of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible, down not just to the concept, not just to the words and paragraphs, but really down to the letter itself, according to Jesus. He says, not not one of those gets changed till I fulfill it, which means it must be inspired down to the letter. Um, and again, that's pretty that's pretty profound. Yes? Of course, it's talking about the original transcript, or what we have the Hebrew text, not the transcript of the Old Testament. 
translations that we have. I, I missed the first part about what you said. The original text, yep. the translations that we have, the different versions. Correct. Yeah, we're talking about the autographs versus copies. Yes. Yeah. But but the point is, uh, you probably read this in in your theology books. We talk about the the plenary verbal inspiration. Plenary verbal inspiration. And we'll talk about that definite that that word in a that phrase in a minute but the verbal part of it has to do with this that we take the words the language the grammar seriously because we believe the holy spirit through the human author crafted those sentences down to the letter that's what we believe um in in the original manuscripts that's correct original autographs uh third god used men as his instruments to write scripture uh, even though he used men as instruments to write scripture, God is ultimately its author and its source. Remember what Paul said to the Thessalonians as he is writing to them. You remember what he said? I mean, he had a lot of really uh, commending things to say to the, to the Thessalonians. But one of the things that he focused on was how the Thessalonians received the message of the apostles. Uh, this early New Testament letter in uh, chapter 2, verse 13 paul writes to the thessalonians he says for this reason we also constantly thank god why because when you received the word of god you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but what but for what it really is the word of god which also performs its work in you who believe so paul's commending the uh, the uh, thessalonian audience that received the word of god not as the word of men but as the word of god even though what it was written by human agency, or right? it was written by the human apostles. So we recognize that there's the, sometimes we call this uh, dual, the, the doctrine of dual authorship, and uh, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Here's that phrase I mentioned, verbal plenary. Uh, the word verbal just stresses it's the actual words, the actual even letters that are God-breathed. Plenary, as the name implies, emphasizes the fact that all of Scripture is equally God-breathed. Now, when you're reading in your Bible reading plan and you get to that section in your Old Testament that is three chapters of genealogies, it might be tempting to wonder, is this just as inspired as John 3.16 or the book of Romans? And uh, it may not be as directly applicational, but it is just as inspired. Okay, from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, plenary means the whole of Scripture is equally God-breathed. There aren't more parts that are more God-breathed or less God-breathed. Now, we have some examples of inspiration. Inspiration, in terms of the mechanics of the doctrine, is all over the Bible. We have, we have phrases like this. The Lord said, The word of the Lord came to the prophet so-and-so, saying, uh, in Exodus 34, God told Moses, write down these words. Uh, Hebrews tells us, in summary fashion, that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, and then I love this, he says, in many portions and in many ways. And the writer of Hebrews expects you to know your Old Testament well enough to know what that means. Okay, So give me some other examples of how God communicated his word in the Old Testament. Other examples? Prophets? Yeah, verbally. And, and that, that is almost always an audible thing. Sometimes it's a written thing. Dreams, yep, occasionally, yep. Images. Images, uh-huh. Anything else? 
Do you guys know what a theophany is? Theophany is when God, who doesn't have a body, he's spirit, takes on some sort of visual phenomenon, some sort of visual presence, and usually in order to communicate uh, a message. So we have theophanies. Um, We think about uh, probably the most famous theophany is the angel of the Lord, which is likely uh, the second person of the Trinity uh, before the incarnation. Um, What else? Yeah, burning bush. Yeah, is a theophany. Mm-hmm. Remember the time you used a donkey? Remember Balaam? Okay. So many portions in many ways. That's why Hebrews says that. I mean, there's a lot. But in these last days, what does he do? He speaks to us, and and the writing the 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 writer to Hebrews writes the verse. He he has spoken to us sort of climactically, or you know, finally, once and for all, in his son. And of course, that that final revelation uh, is inscripturated through the New Testament, uh, penned out by the apostles. Okay, um, we know Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, right? Uh, Matthew one cites Isaiah seven fourteen, um, so we see Jesus using that quoting from the Old Testament. And, and Grudem uh, just concludes the pattern of attributing to God the words of the Old Testament scriptures should be very clear. In other words, Jesus and the New Testament authors regularly affirm the inspiration of the Old Testament by how they use it. And as we've seen, we have some New Testament examples of New Testament authors authors referring to New Testament writing as Scripture. So we have that internal evidence there. Now you say, how did God do that? How did he use a human author to write his divinely inspired word? And you th- I mean, he could have just dropped a floppy disk from heaven you don't know what a floppy disk is do you i didn't think so it's what we used to call the cloud you know it's anyway um jump drive i mean he could have done that right i mean he could have just you know here here's here this is better than google drive you know tap in um he could have put it all in adam and eve's head but he didn't did he um inspiration came about in the wisdom of God, as God using the thoughts, personalities, circumstances, language, experience of the human authors, over 40 authors of Scripture, human authors, who each wrote God's divinely inspired revelation. And Second Peter is the closest thing we have in our Bible on how he did it. So let's look at this, because this is really, really cool. Um, first of all, in context, Peter is talking about uh, the transfiguration. He's, he's not bragging or boasting, but it's kind of like, hey, I got to see Jesus transfigured. Peter, James, and John. You remember that? And uh, he talks about that in chapter, this is chapter 1, verse 17. Uh, we saw such, we heard such an utterance that this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And that's a reference to uh, what these three apostles heard during the transfiguration. Okay. Uh, and he says that when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, now listen. In light of the transfiguration, I mean, and would you would you like to have been there? I mean, if you had a chance to just teleport back to the first century and to see the transfiguration, or you know, wish there was a YouTube video kind of, you know, we've got a, a, a GoPro on the mountain somewhere. It's like, whoa, that's what it looked like. Um, we don't have that, but we have something better. Look at verse 19. Peter writes, "So we have the prophetic word." 
made more sure. The language there is interesting. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I was there on the mountain. I heard the Father speak from heaven. I saw whatever that transfiguration thing was. I was there. But I want you to know we have something better. We have the prophetic word. And that and that's a, a reference to scripture. That that scripture is more sure than what? More sure than what? More sure than the than the transfiguration. More more sure than that experience. He's not downplaying the transfiguration. He's saying we have something that is even more reliable than experience. Even an amazing experience like that. And that's the prophetic word. That's the scripture. And he says, To which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Verse 20. Here's the mechanics. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That's important to see. Because uh, if you read Paul's letters, he doesn't sound like Moses. If you read Jonah's letter, it doesn't sound like Nahum. David's psalms don't sound like Daniel's prayers. I mean, you can read the Bible and go, this was written by different people because the styles, the vocabulary, the grammatical structure is different enough to distinguish different authors. But what's amazing is the message all coincides. The message is the same, even though the authors, the human authors' styles are different. And what Peter's stressing here is, I just want you to know, even though the styles are different, the personalities are different, the experience, that they're not coming up with the content from their own imagination. That's not where they're getting the source, that's not the source of the content. He says here, it's not a matter of that prophet's own interpretation or thinking. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So we think about mechanics. Look at this. We've got scripture is not a matter of the human author's interpretation or explanation. Uh, Scripture does not originate through an act of human will, but in fact, the human authors were moved. Uh, The the word there in Greek is a nautical term. It's a navy term, uh, a boat term. It means to be carried along or driven the way the wind would take hold of a sail. And uh, the human authors were empowered, we might say, worked upon through the Holy Spirit, and thus, what? They, they spoke from God. So that's, that's the best the Bible gives us in terms of understanding the schematic of how God, the mechanics of how God did inspiration, okay? So that's inspiration. Any questions on inspiration? Yes? Correct. Yeah, inspiration is a quality of the text, not the author. Yeah. Yeah, we could say the authors were born along by the Holy Spirit. We can say they were superintended by the Holy Spirit. We we can call it that, but we, we would it would be not be it would not be proper to say that the authors were inspired. It's the text itself that's inspired. And sometimes you hear Christians confuse that a little bit. Okay, our second word here, and, and don't worry, we'll make up some time in the air here, is inerrancy. And a lot of this is, is things we've already seen, right? Since the Bible is God's word, that's what we just proved, right? And God cannot, cannot lie, that's Titus 1-2, it follows that the Bible is... Oh, excuse me. I'm going to give you some definitions first. I'm getting ahead of myself again here. Okay, we've got um, uh, our main 
uh, definition of inerrancy comes from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. You guys familiar with that? Uh, back in the, in the late 20th century, a group of uh, pastors, church leaders, uh, seminary professors got together in what location? Chicago, right? And they drafted a statement on inerrancy, and that was needed because of the liberalization of many churches in the 20th century, and those churches were compromising the doctrine of inerrancy. So, I mean, guys like R.C. Sproul and, and th- those guys were a part of this early meeting. Um, so that's where these definitions come from. And these are sort of our, you know, in our day, sort of the standard statements. So inerrancy means the Bible's without error in the original manuscripts. Inerrant signifies the quality of being free from all falsehood or mistakes. And so safeguards the truth that Holy Scripture is entirely true and trustworthy in all its assertions. Uh, they also distinguish it from infallibility. Uh, today, we kind of use infallibility and inerrancy as the same uh, word as synonyms. But really, to, the difference is in infallibility logically follows from inerrancy. Since the Bible is without error, it's reliable or infallible. As the name implies, infallibility means the Bible can't fail us. It can't let us down uh, in what it teaches because it is coming fr- because it is an inerrant uh, word there. Okay. So now we can think about... Um, this idea, it, since the Bible is God's word, literally God breathed, um, it's revelation and God cannot lie, Titus 1, 2, it follows that the Bible is without error. Makes sense, right? You got a God that can't ever lie and this is his word, so we know that the Bible can't lie to us, right? Uh, know this too, uh, the Bible teaches that God is true, Romans 3, 4, the scriptures were breathed out by God. We just saw that in Second Timothy. Therefore, the scriptures are true since they came from the breath of God, who is true. That's Ryrie's definition there of inerrancy. And the Bible declares itself to be inerrant. Let's just um, let's just look at, a, at a, a quick lightning round of passages here. Turn with me back to the Psalms. Believe it or not, the Psalms are a place that talk often about the nature of the Word of God, particularly its attributes. So we'll just look at a few of these here. So Psalm 12, 6. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on earth, refined seven times. Uh, What's that saying? It's comparing the word of God to a precious metal that has been refined in the furnace. Why why would you refine a, a precious metal in a furnace? take out the impurities so what what's the what's being emphasized here about the quality of god's word yeah it's pure right there's no errors in it there's no impurities it's not an alloy revelation it's a it's a pure revelation right and then verse seven in light of that he says you O lord will keep them you will preserve him from this generation together if that's what the word of god is like he's saying that is reliable in that way flip the page over to psalm 19 verse 7 you guys know this the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And uh, again, a reminder that it, you know, perfect without error. Um, and obviously, if it's able to bring restoration to our souls and all the other things it talks about here, it must be something that is reliable and true. Uh, flip the page, another few pages to the right, to Psalm 119. We could look at any number of different verses here. Uh, but a, but one in particular that 
speaks of the inerrancy is in uh, verse 189, or, or excuse me, in verse 89, uh, starting the, the Lamed section, the L section here, the letter L. 119.89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Well, what's he mean? He's saying the word is established. It, it's unmovable, it's fixed, it's not changeable, which is another way of coming at the reliability or the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, Prover- or Proverbs 35, uh, you can turn there, you can just listen. Uh, this is the proverb I mentioned a moment ago. Uh, but but the, the picture here is, is helpful as it adds one more metaphor to what we're talking about. Every word of God is tested. Again, having that idea of it's, it's been tested and there's no impurities in it. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. See, there's an application there. Now watch this. If that's true, do not add to his words. Why? Because you're going to mess up that perfect revelation. You're introducing error through your or my addition there, right? So, again, and we can go on and on, but, but those, those all give testimony to um, the Bible's own declaration about itself that it is inerrant. Uh, we saw a moment ago Jesus describes the law, the text, down to um, the one portion of a letter would not pass away. Again, emphasizing not just inspiration, but also inerrancy. If, if, it's, if I can't throw away even a part of a letter, even this letter must be important. right? He's not saying, well, you've got to do some editing um, and all of that. Okay, So that is what we think of as inerrancy. Okay? And then finally, authority. You say, what's authority? You know, a very simple definition of authority means the right to command behavior. Someone who's in authority has the right to tell you what to do <laughs> or pull you over or put you in jail or put you under a law or something like that, send, send you to bed at 9 o'clock. You know. um, authority is the right to command behavior. And the Bible teaches that God has all authority. Um, we'll look at this uh, the little book right at the end of your Bible called Jude. And uh, we often use this in our church as a doxology, uh, a way to conclude our service or some special event. But listen listen to how Jude describes God in this passage. Uh, this is uh, chapter 1, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you to stand in the presence of his glory blameless and with great joy. Listen to this. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be what? Glory, majesty, dominion, his sovereignty over all, and authority before all time and now and forever. Uh, Jude isn't saying we hope those things are true about God. He's concluding his letter as a doxology saying these things are true about our God. Let's remember them as we go on now in our day. Jesus in Matthew 28 uh, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? So the Bible teaches that God has ultimate, comprehensive, final authority. Therefore, what that means is God has the right to command our thoughts, our desires, our beliefs, our words, our actions, and our overall behavior. And we, we see that. Uh, we remember what the psalm says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, 
Um, he commands our thought. Did you know that? God can tell us what to do. And because he has all authority, we ought to submit ourselves to him. That's our thoughts, our desires, our beliefs, our words, our actions. Everything ought to come under his authority. Okay, so we have inspiration, we have inerrancy, we have authority. Now, those are your three paragraphs. What's the fourth paragraph? How do all those relate? Okay, so let's talk about that. There is a very sort of logical relationship here, okay? Um, If God has all authority, and he does, and the scriptures are his inspired, inerrant, infallible word, and it is, it follows that the scriptures carry the intrinsic authority of God himself. Do you see how that fits together? Why should I listen to this book? It's just a book. It's an old book. It's 2,000 years old. It's a translation. It's been changed multiple times, right? Why should I listen to this book? Because if God has all authority, and he does, and if the Bible is his inspired and errant word, and that's what it claims to be, then that same authority that's in God's person himself is mediated through the Bible to you and me as we read it and hear it uh, in our lives. And again, you know, Jesus walks in the room and says, go give me a Coke or whatever. We wouldn't take that as a suggestion, right? We, we would take it as command. We would do it happily. I get to serve the King of Kings. A Coke. Or maybe he's a Coke Zero guy. I don't know. But, right? I get to do it. And, and that, that's, that's the idea, is that authority comes through the Word of God because it's inspired and because it's inerrant. Now, if the Bible really is the very Word of God, God, true and reliable in every matter it addresses, then it brings ultimate authority on every matter since God has ultimate authority over everything, right? I, I, don't, I don't say, well, you know, I like what, what John says, but I don't like what Genesis says, so... I'm going to do what Thomas Jefferson did and get a pair of scissors out and cut out the parts of the Bible I don't like. It's true. Yeah, we'll talk about Luther later on, yeah. Yeah, he didn't go quite that extreme, but he struggled with a few books, yeah. So, um, so yeah, we, we can't do that, right? Because that is the Word of God. And Now, flip it around. If the Bible was fallible, it couldn't be authoritative. Because you and I would spend the rest of our life wondering... What part's legit and what part is in error? So you see, all these things linked together. Authority, inspiration, inerrancy comes to us, right? Um, I got a couple of thoughts here on authority, and I, I just I, I put them there. These are verses we've already looked at, so um, if you need more content on that, uh, Jesus viewed the uh, scriptures as authoritative. We actually already saw that when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. Other biblical writers consider the scriptures authoritative. We already looked at that. But again, you can bring those verses to bear when you're talking about authority. You, you guys know, um, do you guys know about the Masoretes? That was not an 80s rock band, uh, the Masoretes, no. Uh, the Masoretes, the Masoretes, um, they were the original obsessive compulsive scribes. Uh, the Masoretes or the Masoretes were a group of Orthodox Jewish scribes who were charged with copying the Old Testament. And if you know anything about 
how we got our Bibles, you know that the Aleppo Codex, which dates to the 10th century A.D., was the most reliable Old Testament we had until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls that confirmed the reliability of the Old Testament to before the time of Christ, right? You say, well, how did we get a Bible that over a thousand years was translated accurately and, and copied accurately? They don't have computers. They don't have smartphones, right? They don't have, they don't have a Xerox machine, right? They, they don't have, a, they don't have um, carbonless duplicate paper. I mean, they don't have any technology, right? How did they do it? The Masoretes. These are scribes that... They'd have you know, their, their, their copy of the, of the scripture and then their blank scroll, but they did something. They developed an error correction system. They would go through a line of text and they would calculate all the A's and then they would number all the B's and then they would number all the C's working all the way through the alphabet, Hebrew alphabet, and then they would keep tallies. They would calculate the center of the book. They would calculate the number of words in, in a on a page and they would keep all these mathematical statistics so after they copied the scroll the scroll what would they do they'd go back and they'd count all the a's to make sure it corresponds and all the b's to make sure it corresponds and count all the words and all the letters and and they did it by hand like some you know um you know hole punch machine you know what, what, what do they call that scantron some you don't know what scantron is either but you know remember scantron you remember scantron are there still scantrons? Really? Okay, all right. Well, anyway. So the, the point is that there's no technology to help. The Masoretes developed that system by hand, and they applied it by hand. And that's part of why the Bible is so reliable, uh, is, is those Old Testament scribes that just were tedious. Listen to Grudem. It's important to realize that the final form in which Scripture remains authoritative is its written form. Truth is what God says, and we have what God says in the Bible. Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Do you hear it? Inspiration, inerrancy, authority, and how they all link together there. Okay? Got some great resources there for you to check out. Uh, Do you have any questions for me about this ACBC exam question? All right. You want to get to the snack table two minutes early? I'll pray. Uh, Father, thank you. Uh, What a gift we have in your word. And I pray as we have reminded ourselves of it today that you you would give us hearts that treat the word of God, listen to the word of God, submit to the word of God, love the word of God, and prize the word of God as what it is, your very word. And that we would joyfully submit ourselves to its contents as an expression of our love and devotion to you. Thank you for the chance to think about these things together. I pray you give my brothers and sisters grace and wisdom as they draft an answer uh, for this question. In Jesus' name.